to the CPS Truth Now podcast, where the truth will set you free from CPS atrocities. And now your host, Adamar Garcia. Welcome to the CPS Truth Now podcast. We're here today with Rachel Bruno. And I wanted to uh, also invite uh, co-host Teresa Blaze uh, to join in us on this uh, show. We also wanted to let you know that we are going to jump into our story here in just a minute. But before that, we'd like to know, let you know about our sponsor. Our sponsor is Kadosh Media, who uh, they can help you set up a podcast and set up podcast hosting podcast uh, releases and launches, and they can go ahead and open up your life for podcast. So anytime you'd like to go ahead and do that, you can go to www.kadoshmedia.com. All right, now let's go on into our story with Rachel Bruno. Rachel, how are you doing today? I am great. Thank you for having me on. It's good to have you. Um, I would like for you to tell your story uh, of how you have had to fight CPS itself. Okay. Well, let's start back in the beginning. Now, my encounter with CPS began July 8th of 2015 when I took my seven-week-old son to the emergency room because he had been crying nonstop ever since I had woken up that morning. Now, a little background about myself. Um, I have seizures, I have epilepsy, and one of the main triggers to my episodes are sleep deprivation or interrupted sleep. Now, all of you moms out there know that if you have a newborn baby, you ain't sleeping. So my doctor recommended that I get a nanny or a nighttime nurse to help me at least in the nighttime shift so that I can get my eight hours of sleep. So I took the doctor's advice. I interviewed a couple of people and I hired a nanny to take care of my son from 10 p.m. until 6 a.m. And this morning of July 8th, I woke up at about four o'clock in the morning with my son screaming. And I looked at the clock, I'm like, okay, four o'clock in the morning, she's either feeding him or changing his diaper, something to that effect. And he stopped crying. So I'm like, okay, now I tried to go back to sleep. Then a few minutes go by, he starts screaming again. Then he stops, then he starts, then he stops again. So this went on for a few minutes until I got out of bed. I went to his room and the nanny had him swaddled in his crib and was kind of shushing him, you know, by his head, trying to calm him down. He was not calming down. So she picked him up and put him on her shoulder, like on that burp position. And he stopped screaming, but he really, he looked really uncomfortable. So I stepped in and I asked her, you know, did something happen? And she shows me the empty bottle and she says, I just fed him, he's really gassy. And I said, okay, you know, fair enough, babies get gassy. At this point, I'm home alone. My husband is on a business trip and I have my seven week old son and I also have my 20 month old son who was sleeping directly across the hall. So I figured, you know, the baby's not settling down. I'm awake anyway. So I told her, you know, why don't you go home and I will take it from here. So she left the house and I, you know, took my son, I unswaddled him, I undressed him to see if there were any bruises, any rashes, if there, if he had a fever, if there was any leakage, you know, all the usual things you can think about. 
and there was none of that. So I just left him without his clothes on. I gave him skin to skin and I fell asleep with him on my bed. He fell asleep. I'm like, okay, you know, you just wanted your mommy. So doze off. And next thing I hear is another scream. And, you know, I wake up, I see it seven o'clock in the morning. I'm like, okay, last feeding was four o'clock. It's now seven o'clock. You're hungry. I tried to nurse him and he just would not latch. You know, he just kept opening his mouth and crying, screaming. And I'm like, okay, what is wrong with this baby? Like I knew something was different, but I was kind of jaded with, you know, the gassiness. Like, are you having a nursing strike, colic? Maybe you're not hungry. So I swaddled him again and I put him in that burp position. And anytime I held him up in that burp position, he would stop screaming. So I'm like, okay, do you just want to be held? You know, so I hold him. I go get my 20 month old son who had just woken up. And here I am juggling these two boys, you know, trying to get our morning routine going. And anytime I would lay Lucas, the baby, anytime I would lay him down, he would just start screaming. And anytime I held him, he would stop screaming. This went on for about six hours and he would not eat. He would not sleep. My mom was with her husband who was having cataract surgery. My husband was out of state. So I'm like, okay, I call my mom, like, mom, please find somebody to pick up, you know, your husband. I need somebody to come here so that I can take this baby to the pediatrician. Something is wrong. I don't know what's wrong. She comes over and, you know, I give her the baby. I go call the doctor. The receptionist told me that the doctor wouldn't be available until three o'clock that afternoon. And I tell her, you know, this kid has been screaming since four o'clock this morning. I need to see somebody. And she said, okay, then take him to the emergency room. So at this point, I'm there with my mom, my 20 month old son, we all get in the car together and we drive to the hospital, you know, the children's hospital that I knew. And as we know, you know, babies love to sleep in the car. As soon as we get in the car and the car starts driving, my son stops crying. He's seemingly fallen asleep. And I'm like, great, you know, here I am, overreactive mom going to the emergency room. But we get there, the receptionist asked me what the symptoms are. They do take me to the back room right away. A nurse comes in, you know, takes his vital signs, no fever, blood pressure seemed fine, everything seemed fine. But the pediatrician came right away and he told me to lay my son down flat on the bed. And at this point, again, my son seems like he's sleeping. He's not crying anymore. He's just, there's no reaction, right? So I lay him down on the bed and the doctor steps away, probably about 10 feet. You know, I'm thinking he's gonna leave the room, but he stops right at the door. And he is just laser focused on my son, staring at my son at that bed. And everybody is silent around the room. He stands there for probably about 15, 20 seconds. And then he walks towards the bed again. And he goes right to my son's head, right behind his left ear. And he looks at me and he asks me, did you feel this? And I said, no. So he grabs my hand. He puts it right there behind my son's ear. And he says, you feel that bulge? And I said, yes. He says, that's fluid. That's leaking from your son's brain. So at this point, I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? He's like, it could be spinal cerebral fluid or it can be blood. We need to go do a CT scan right away to see what's going on. As soon as he says that, about eight people, eight personnel rush into that room and they're intubating my son. They're putting tubes all over the place. They're sticking the, the monitors on his heart. They start rolling me away into the CT room. And as we're rolling down the hallway, his right arm starts twitching. When his right arm starts twitching, those nurses really start running. 
And I look at the nurse, I said, is this normal? And she says, no. And that's the first thing that came to my mind. I'm like, oh, right arm twitching, left side of the brain, he's having a seizure. And first thing that comes to me is, oh my God, I gave this to my son. It's genetic, it's hereditary. I see a little prayer for him right there. Like, God, please spare my son from having to live with this like I did. We get to the CT room, they take him away and the doctors tell me to go wait in the waiting room for the results. I'm in shock. I'm in shock, I'm there with my mom. We start texting everybody. I, my husband is in a business meeting, no idea what the heck is going on. You know, I just went from gassy baby to now there's fluid leaking from my son's brain. The doctors come back, take me to the back room where all the monitors are. And he says, this is very serious. I said, okay, it's a cranial fracture and the fluid that is leaking is blood. The brain hates blood. We need to go do emergency surgery right now to see what we can do. So I'm still in shock. I'm like, well, okay, surgery, emergency brain surgery, blood. It's like, are you against blood transfusions? I'm like, I don't care what you have to do to save my son, save my son. I'm signing all these papers. It's just complete chaos in that emergency room. But they wheel off my seven week old baby into the operating room. And there I am left with my mom, with my 20 month old son and our heads are spinning. You know, at that moment in time, I don't think it really registered with me that it was a cranial fracture, you know, that the bone was actually broken. All I was thinking was, you know, the fontel isn't completely formed yet. The baby's head isn't, the cranium isn't completely formed. Maybe one of those flaps popped open. The bleeding could have been caused by an aneurysm, which caused the flap to open. I was thinking a gazillion things in my head. Never did I imagine that it could have been done on purpose. So we're there waiting, four hours go by and the surgeon comes out. He tells me everything went well clinically. We were able to drain the blood. We were able to fix the fracture. And first words out of me, no, is he gonna be okay? Is he gonna be brain damaged? And the doctor tells me, we really don't know. Due to his young age, we really don't know whether he's gonna survive the next 48 hours. But we have him in a medically induced coma right now in the PICU. We're trying to figure out the right cocktail of meds to give him because he was having about 15 seizures an hour after that surgery. So I go into that room and I see my baby, you know, seven weeks old, has tubes coming out of every orifice you can imagine. You know, the machines are beeping and he's just laying there seemingly lifeless to me. You no know, gauze wrapped all over his head. And again, I just pray, touch his little hand. And I ask God, I don't care what I have to do. I don't care if I have to take, if I have to dedicate the rest of my life to take care of my son, I will. Just don't take him away from me. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me at that moment. And he told me he's mine. I gave him to you. Nobody's going to take him away from you. And I felt the peace that surpasses all understanding at that moment. I reflected, I received, and I said, you're right, God. There's no better place for my son to be than in your hands. He is yours. I surrender my son to you. And I felt peace at that moment. My mom was still there with me. My 20 month old son was there with me, you know, bouncing off the walls. Hadn't had a nap all day, hadn't eaten all day. 
I called my other friend to come pick up my mom and my son. You know, I obviously wasn't leaving the hospital that night. So I asked my mom to take my older son, David, to go spend the night at her house. My friend takes her over. My husband is on his way from West Virginia straight to the hospital. So I'm just texting him in between connections, telling him what's going on. A few, maybe an hour goes by and a man in uniform and a lady with a clipboard come knock on my room. Now, if you guys have ever been to a PICU or a NICU, you know, or any intensive care unit, like the rooms are all made of glass, right? You're in this big glass bubble and everybody can see you. So they knock on the glass wall and I look up like, Miss Bruno, yeah, can we speak to you? I said, yeah. The first words out of the police officer's mouth, what happened to your son today? was worse than getting hit in the head by a bullet. Will you help us figure out how this happened to your son? We want to help you. And I'm like, okay, sure. I mean, if you're asking me for help and you're saying a bullet to my kid's head, are you think, are you, you know, saying the nanny tried to kill my son? That's what was going through my head. And if you're asking me for help, you obviously don't think I did anything. So I said, of course, I sat down with both of them, tell them the whole saga from four o'clock in the morning till that time in the hospital. He asked me where my husband is, tell him he's out of state on a business trip. The police officer asked me why I didn't call 911 when my baby wouldn't stop crying. And I told him because I thought he was gassy and I had no idea what was going on with him. He said, why did it take you so long to bring him to the hospital? said again, I mean, I thought he was gassy. I had no idea what was wrong with him. Why did you bring him to a hospital in Orange County when you live in LA County? And because this is the children's hospital that I know. So he's all jotting this down. Then the social worker asked me if I have any other children. Tell her I do. She asked me names, ages, location. I tell her, oh, my son, he's with my mom. And she asks, is it okay if we go see him? And at this point, it's probably around nine o'clock at night. And I tell her, you know, he's probably asleep by now. And she tells me, we're not gonna wake him. We just wanna make sure he's okay. So again, at this point, thinking I have nothing to hide and these people are here to help me, I call my mom, I give the social worker her address. I tell her that she wants to go see David. So at that point, the social worker leaves and I'm thinking, you know, she's gonna go to my mom's house. The police officer stays with me asks me when my husband is coming. And I tell him, he says, he asked me if I'm willing to wait for the detectives, that the detectives are on their way and they would like to speak to me as well. So I said, okay, yes, I will wait. So while we're waiting for the detectives, he puts me in a room away from my son in another room. My husband comes straight from the airport to the hospital. The police officer takes my husband to another room and he goes to ask my husband, you know, now we can see in hindsight that they were seeing if our stories cooperated each other, if there was anything fishy going on. While I'm waiting for the detectives, they didn't show up till about midnight. So mind you, I'd been up since four o'clock that morning. It's now midnight when the detectives show up and they interview me till about two o'clock in the morning. I'm the one who actually had to cut it off. You know, I tell them, I'm like, I need to sleep, right? I've been up since four o'clock. It's been almost 24 hours. I don't want to have a seizure now. 
we can continue this conversation later today if you would like. So they were very friendly, gave me their business cards. And my husband comes out, gives me my medication, tells me to go to sleep. I wake up at about 10 o'clock later that day. And my husband is just staring at me. My first instinct is to look over at the baby. Like he's awake. I mean, he's alive, right? The machines are beeping and like, what, what's going on? Why are you looking at me like that? And my husband looks at me and he says, they took David. I said, who's they? Where, how, who, what, how, what, 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 what happened? And he's like, yeah, they showed up at your mom's house at two o'clock in the morning with three police cars and they took David. And he's been calling social workers all morning. They won't answer the phone. The supervisors won't answer the phone. I call my mom and I'm like, mom, what the heck happened? She's like, they showed up here at two o'clock in the morning with the police officers. They walked through the house and the social worker tells me to turn on the light in David's room, turn on the light. David wakes up right away. He's all happy and bouncy and ready to play. Social worker asks me to take his clothes off. She observes, looks at everything, checks for anything. There are no marks. There's nothing, no signs of abuse. And then she tells me we're going to take him. And my mom is like, no, you're not. And she said, if you don't give him to us, you're going to be arrested. And mind you, there's a bunch of police officers inside my mom's house and none of them say a word. They're just standing there as the social worker is basically threatening my mom. And my mom says, if I go to jail, do I take him with me? She says, no, he's gonna go to foster care and you are not gonna be able to care for him because you're gonna have a criminal record. My dad goes to the garage, starts calling lawyers, calling friends. Mind you, it's two o'clock in the morning. Nobody's answering the phone. There's a bunch of commotion going on. The social worker is on her walkie talkies, is on her cell phone saying they're calling for backup. Grandmother is not cooperating. My then 20 month old son starts noticing all this commotion, starts crying. And at this point, you know, nobody knows what the heck is going on. Nobody knows what to do. So my mom gives my son to the social worker and takes him outside, straps him in the car seat. He's kicking and screaming, screaming for my mom. My mom can't do anything. And off they drive in the middle of the night, gave my mom a business card and told her, no, call me tomorrow and we'll tell you when you can see, when you can pick him up. So here we are the next day at the hospital. No idea where my son is. No idea what the allegations are, what the charges are, nothing. So my husband starts calling social services. I start calling lawyers. I get a lawyer that is willing to see me that afternoon. I go to his office and I'm in shock. I'm like, what the heck is going on? Like, where's my son and where can I go get him? He tells me, sit down. He's like, you have no idea what you're in for. Like, what are you talking about? Like, this is crazy. They can't just come take away your kid. He's like, yes, they can. I'm like, what country is this? Like, are we back in Nazi Germany? Like, what happened to our constitution? What happened to innocent until proven guilty? What about the nanny? What about, like, I didn't do this. And he's like, I believe you. Doesn't matter. This is family court. They don't have to follow the constitution. They can do whatever they deem is in the best interest of the child. And I'm just sitting there in shock. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? This is insane. Like, there was no signs of abuse on my son. There was, what about the nanny? Like, are they going to go after the nanny? And he said, they may, they may not. We don't know.
But right now, you, you are facing criminal charges. It's a criminal investigation. If they decide to charge you, you're facing 15 years in jail and $100,000 bail. And they are not going to give your kids back to you. And I'm, I'm in shock. I'm like, I didn't do this. Like, what, what is going on here? Like, it doesn't matter if you did this or not. Okay. Your children are under two years old, nonverbal. They can be legally adopted by the foster family if the case lasts longer than six months. And they will make it last longer than six months. And I'm like, adopted? What do you mean adopted? Like, they're going to take away my kids? They're going to adopt my kids? I guess they can do that. So I'm receiving all this information. I mean, I, I don't know what to think. Like this is twilight zone, right? He continues to talk. He says, you know, your saving grace is that your husband was out of town when this happened. So legally speaking, he wasn't even at the crime scene. Our best bet is to ask the judge to get sole custody to your husband. That way the children don't even risk going into foster care. If the judge approves this, then they're gonna kick you out of the house. So at this point, you know, what are my options? I can go into court and technically go in there and fight for my rights with the risk that my children will be removed and placed in foster care. Or I can give them to their father and me being kicked out of the house and losing contact with my children. So of course, you know, I don't care what you do to me, right? I'm the adult in the situation, just leave my kids alone. So I said, fine, you know, we'll go in there. We'll give them to the father. I go home and I tell my husband all this and everybody is in shock and in horror. My whole family is like, this is not, this is ridiculous. They can't do this. You know, we start praying. We, I tell my family in Brazil, I tell my friends in Switzerland, in Africa, this entire country was praying for us. We go to what they call the 72 hour hearing, which is the emergency hearing three days later. And I walk into that courtroom and I'm thinking it's going to be at least, you know, Judge Judy style where one side says something, the other side says something and you debate each other and the judge gets to decide. But no, the nanny wasn't there. The police officers weren't there. The social workers weren't there. There was nobody on trial in that courtroom except for me. I was the only one there. My husband was there and a bunch of lawyers. So they start talking and I'm thinking to myself, okay, when is the judge going to ask me? Like, when is it gonna be my turn to talk? Next thing I hear my name, Ms. Bruno, do you object? And I said, no, he had just asked me if I had objected for the children to be placed with their father. He goes around the room, children's attorneys, do you object? No. Social services, do you object? Yes. Why? Because we never got to speak to the father. So we don't know whether he's fit or not. At this point, court goes into recess and we all go outside into the hallway and I'm there with my lawyer. My husband is there with his lawyer and we're like, okay, what, what the heck just happened? How, what, what are we doing now? So they start brainstorming the two lawyers. They're like, they go back inside. They say, you guys wait here. So we stay in the hallway. They go back inside and I don't know what the heck they said in there. They argued their way in there and we get called back in. The judge looks at me, Ms. Bruno, you understand? Children will be placed with their father. You will have 24 hours to vacate your premises. A social worker will be contacting you. A caseworker will be contacting you regarding visitation. 
and a safety plan. Court is adjourned. And with the swoop of the gavel, I had just been kicked out of the house. I had just lost custody of my children and I had no idea when I would be able to see them again. I just hug my mom as we walk out. We're crying, we're bawling. And my attorney looks at me, I told you this was gonna happen. Like, I know, I know, but I, I still couldn't believe it. I mean, this is, this is unbelievable that these people have the power to do this with no due process, no investigation, no trial, no nothing, and just take away your children. So I go home that day, I go clean out everything. You know, my lawyer tells me you don't leave anything in that house, not even a toothbrush, because they're gonna come into your house and if they find anything of yours, they're gonna use it against you. Remove everything from my house. My neighbor at that point was gracious enough to let me store everything in his house. And I asked my attorney, where the heck am I supposed to go? They won't let me live with my mom because my mom was with my son when he was seized. I can't live with my husband now that my children are gonna be with him. I'm an only child. My entire family is in Brazil. Where am I supposed to go? And my attorney says, well, as long as your son is in the hospital, you can stay there, it's a monitored facility. So I said, okay. So I go back to the hospital and I sleep in the hospital for about two to three days. My mom asks my pastor to come pray for us at the hospital. And at this point in time, my pastor was actually in Cambridge writing a book, but his wife came over to the hospital and she saw the state my son was in. You know, she gives me a hug, we pray for my son. And then she turns around and she looks at me and she says, I've been praying and God told me you're coming home with me. And I just hug her and start crying. And thank you, Jesus. You know, I knew this person. We've been going to this church for about five years, but I wouldn't consider us friends. You know, she basically invited a stranger to her house and God was moving, you know, despite all this chaos, despite all the pain, Despite all the injustice, I could see God's hand in everything that was going on at that moment. I couldn't have asked for a better friend. You know, she would cry with me. She would laugh with me. She would pray with me. And this went on for 40 days and 40 nights. I was court ordered to take child abuse classes, parenting classes, and individual counseling. I was given seven hours a week of monitored visits with both my sons. And again, you know, my whole family's in Brazil. We really didn't have anybody in here who could help us. Like how was my husband going to run a business and take care of a newborn who just had brain surgery and a traumatized toddler? So my family in Brazil, you know, gathered together. My mother-in-law gave the money so that my cousin who was the dentist in Brazil could come over to the States along with her mom to come take care of my kids. Again, you know, just seeing all these little things happening and God moving, despite all the trauma, despite the horrendous situation we were in, I knew I was incredibly blessed at this moment, that I had so many people who were willing to just drop anything and everything they were doing to come help me and my family. So my cousin and my aunt came over, they were with my sons 
and taking care of my sons. I mean, I couldn't have asked for somebody to love my sons more than these people. During this process, you know, in the child abuse classes, I'm thinking, what the heck am I gonna do in a child abuse class? There's gonna be a bunch of drug addicts, alcoholics, domestic violence, you know, tattooed up people. And when I get there, much to my surprise, everybody was in the same boat that I was. I kept hearing all these stories of, you know, bath time accidents where a father slipped, baby broke the arm, child abuse, baby gets taken away. There was in the park on the swing, pulled the leg too hard, dislocated the, the tibia, child abuse, all the children were taken away. A 15 year old posting naked pictures of herself on Instagram, father disciplines her, she calls the police, everybody gets taken away. And I'm thinking to myself, what the heck is going on? Like, this is crazy. Like, why, why would these people do this? You know, try to take away these kids from families that, you know, do accidents not exist anymore? Or what is going on here? Something really weird going on here. And, you know, we were in this child abuse class in Orange County. The culprits were always the same. You know, it was the same doctor at the hospital we'd taken. We had the same judges. We had the same caseworkers. And I'm like, okay, one time is a mistake, two times a coincidence, three times, now we have a pattern. And I start praying, you know, and reflecting about this. And interestingly enough, when I was thinking about this, somebody called me and told me, Rachel, I've been praying and the word repent keeps coming to me, repent. Now, at that point, I kind of took it, you know, like Job's friends told him, you know, you must have done something wrong. You must have done something to deserve this, you know, ask God for forgiveness. And I'm like, okay, you know, so I hang up with this person. And later that night, I pray. I said, okay, God, you know, who sinned? Was it my mother? Was it my father? Was it me? Was it my husband? What is going on here? And the Holy Spirit spoke to me that night. And he said, nothing, my child. What you're witnessing right now is just the broken world that we live in. It's the evil world that we live in. It's the destruction of the family, which is what Satan has been trying to do from the moment I created it. And as I'm feeling this, I'm hearing this word and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, yes. You know, Cain and Abel, like Adam and Eve from the very beginning, right? Trying to put husband against wife, brother against brother. And it's been that way forever. And it was the devil's plan. And I keep praying, I keep asking for God to reveal it to me. And he says, you know, what you're witnessing right now is not gonna be in vain. Your family's pain is not gonna be in vain. You are going to help other families. You are gonna bring light to this. And do not fear, do not be afraid. Your children are going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. And I just cried that night. I thanked God that night. And I had a complete shift of perspective from that point forward. Every night I began praying for all the families that were in that child abuse class with me. I began praying, you know, God, prepare me, prepare the way for what is going on, for what is coming, Lord, I am yours. Even if I go to jail, God, if I have to go to jail, if there's somebody in that jail that needs to hear from you and I'm that person, then Lord, here I am, take me. I just had this amazing strength that I can't describe, you know, the grace of God was poured over me. That's the only way I know I wasn't losing my mind was because of God.
constantly with me and constantly in prayer. And in the meantime, you know, I would go to my visits. I would cry every day. I would pray every day. You know, it's not to say that this was easy. It was one of the worst times in my life. And again, I'd never been so close to God. My faith had never been stronger. So back to the 40 days, you know, this was 40 days and 40 nights. On the 40th day, we had a hearing. And my attorney tells me, you know, don't even bother coming to court today. The status of your investigation hasn't changed. The criminal investigation is still open. So don't waste your time. I won't waste mine. So he'd been right about everything so far. You know, I tell my husband, this is what he says. And my husband says, I don't care what he's saying, we're going. So I'm like, fine, whatever, let's go. I go to the courthouse and wait outside that hallway. About an hour goes by, my attorney calls me. He says, where are you? I said, I'm here at the courthouse. He says, okay, I'll be there in about an hour. Maybe we can do something today. And he hangs up on me. So at that point, I'm like, okay, I don't know what's gonna happen. Something's gonna happen. Everybody just start praying. And here we go, you know, having like our little vigil outside the, the courtroom. And again, the same people all across this country, in Africa, in Switzerland, in Brazil, everybody praying for us. I see my attorney come down the hallway. I go hug him and he pushes me away. He's like, don't hug me yet. I can't make you any promises. And he goes into the courtroom. Sitting outside, about an hour goes by, he comes back with a stack of papers and he says, you know, initial this, crosses something out, sign this, initial this. And at this point, I have no idea what I'm signing, what I'm initialing. I'm just trusting God and my attorney at that point. This goes on for about three hours. He comes out with a huge stack of papers. It's about 800 pages long. And he says, okay, if you're willing to sign this document the way it's written, there's nothing in here admitting guilt. There's nothing in here saying that you did this. It's just the medical records. It's the narrative, the social worker's narrative, the police reports and your updates, you know, your status from your child abuse classes and all the services you've completed. If you're willing to sign this, they will let you go home today. So at this point, if they had told me to cut my leg off, I would have done it, right? I just wanted to be home with my newborn child, with my then 20 month old son and my husband. I signed that and I was able to go home that day. My attorney looked at me. He said, I've been doing this for 23 years and I have never seen them let anybody go home before trial. You definitely have a higher power working for you. And I said, amen, hugged him, went home, got to be with my children. I was still court ordered to finish taking the services. We were put on what they call family maintenance plan where the social worker goes to your house once a month, unannounced, makes a visit, writes the report, and her recommendation at the end of six months was that our case be closed. So this started back in July of 2015. Our case was closed in February of 2016. It was closed, you know, technically we were free. I could move on with my life. I could have closed this chapter, but I just had this fire in my butt. I'm like, I cannot be silent knowing what I know all the injustice that is going on in the system, all the parents who I know were not as fortunate as me. I can't stay silent, Lord. You know, open the doors for me so that I can go and speak the truth and shine a light on this. So while I was doing that, I'm like, the next step to do, you know, how can I hold these people accountable? Like there's really nothing I can do except to sue them. 
I contacted a civil rights attorney. His name is Sean McMillan. And that's all he does here in California is sue CPS. I mean, he has won millions and millions of dollars in these lawsuits. So I called him up, I told him my case. I mean, I called him for probably about three months before I got a hold of him. And I finally did. And he said, yeah, I'll take your case. You know, your case is pretty clear cut. They did all this without a warrant, without a court order. There were no exigent circumstances. So they were totally out of line. We signed the petition and we start forward with our civil lawsuit. We signed it in April of 2016 and we had a court date or the trial date was scheduled for June 4th, 2019. But we had a long ways to go and I'm like, are you serious this long? He's like, yeah, you'd be surprised how long discovery is gonna take. So we start the discovery process, you know, where we get all the documents and in family court or juvenile court, they use the excuse that they are minors. Therefore, their records are sealed until they're 18 years old for the sake of their privacy. So we had not had access to any of their records or what exactly happened be behind the scenes, you know, when they seized my son or what they were doing behind the scenes, period. But during discovery, during our civil suit, we were able to get all the juvenile records. And that's when we saw so much stuff. I mean, that is unbelievable. The lies that were made up, you know, the false allegations, the implications, and what they did to my son. You know, David, when they took him at two o'clock in the morning that night, they took him straight to the children's shelter, to the Orange County Children's Shelter. And without our consent, without a court order, without anything, they gave my son 13 vaccinations at once. They forced my son through a full skeletal survey, which is basically taking an image of every bone in your body. They gave my son an anal wink test, which is a test they do when there are allegations of sexual abuse. And we had no idea that this happened to our son. I'm like 13 vaccinations at once. You people could have killed my son. And I'm like, you know, did they even bother calling the pediatrician to see why our son wasn't vaccinated? You know, we are not anti-vaxxers. We had simply changed the schedule in accordance with his pediatrician because he had had a reaction to a previous vaccine. So, you know, we're looking at all these things and, you know, you're infuriated and at the same time, incredibly grateful that nothing worse happened to my son. I mean, literally my son could have died at that hospital from all those vaccines. And they told the doctors that there was a suspicion that I had hit my son against the wall. And that's why they needed to do the skeletal survey. There were reports in there. We got the text messages between the social workers and the supervisors, the detectives and the police officers that night before they even got to the hospital, they had already made up their minds to take away my kids before ever talking to me, just based on what the mandated reporter, the child abuse pediatrician had told law enforcement. So one of the most alarming text messages was between the social worker and the supervisor, where the social worker that was on her way to interview me tells her supervisor, I'm on my way to the hospital, have an infant with a cranial fracture, Sibling is 20 months old and is with the grandmother per mom. Oh yeah, and the baby was overnight with a doula. So the 
Supervisor replies back and says, OMG, you think it was the nanny slash doula? And the social worker replies back, no, think mom. And that's before they even interviewed me, before they met me, before anything. The detectives, when the police officer told me to wait for the detectives that they were on their way, well, in that little time period that they were on their way, the detective was already telling the social worker to go to my mom's house and seize my 20-month-old son. No warrant, no court order, no nothing. So all this is coming to light. And again, it's infuriating. But at the same time, I'm like, God, you protected our family like so much. I can't even imagine how much worse this could have been. We finally get to the depositions where, you know, this is basically like our day in court. It's under oath, it's transcribed, it's videotaped. I have over 36 hours of video where they all admit that yes, they did take the children without a warrant. Yes, they know that's legally not the way they're supposed to do it. No, there were no exigent circumstances. No, I don't think the mom did it. No, we did not investigate the nanny. And they talk like this is nothing. I'm like, do people realize that, you know, these are people's families at stake here. You are destroying people's lives. And it was, it was incredible. It was unbelievable to sit there and listen to this. And I would just cry during those depositions, you know, just from the pain that these people seemingly had no remorse whatsoever for what they did. No remorse. And the day came where mediation, you know, where we have to do mediation before trial to see if we could come to some conclusion. And I did not want to settle, right? I told my attorney, I'm like, I don't care if I get $1 when we go to trial. I just want these people held accountable. And I want a jury to see these people. I want them to be held accountable and to be, you know, put through the ringer like what they did to us. And my attorney says, you know, I understand that completely. And I'm not saying that your case doesn't have merit. I'm not saying that you will lose. But people are finicky. Juries are finicky. And it's a toss-up. You know, and especially when you're talking about police officers, doctors, and social workers. Because these are supposed to be the good guys. Right? These are the people that are helping the community. And it's really hard to convince a jury that these people did this maliciously, right? Or that they had the intent to hurt you and to hurt your family. So my advice to you is if they offer, you know, X amount of money that you take the money and run. Because even if we go to trial, even if we win, they are going to appeal the decision and we are back to square one where you're gonna have to incur hundreds of thousands of dollars in court costs again not to mention the emotional toll, the financial toll, the physical toll, everything that it's going to take on your family. So, you know, my husband had to swallow that. My husband and I, we spoke with our pastors, we prayed, and we had a set number in our head, and we're like, okay, you know, God, from the beginning, we have prayed about this, and all I wanted was a clean slate. You know, I wanted to have all my debts paid off, all the debt that we incurred because of this, it was over $250,000. We had lost our business. 
because we could not keep our business running. My husband had to find a, a full-time job. And I'm like, I just want to go back to square one and be able to move on with my life. So mediation came, we go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And we got $500,000 from LA County, the police department. Huh? We got $900,000 from Orange County and social services. And we got $90,000 from the hospital. So the total came out to be $1.49 million. Now I know that sounds like a lot of money, you know, and I'm not complaining at all, but it was not about the money ever, right? There's no amount of money that they can repay me for what they took away from me. And I left that mediation feeling like a piece of crap. <laughs> I'm like, I, I felt like a sellout. I felt like, you know, justice was not served. You know, these people are not gonna be held liable for what they did. And I remember just going home and sleeping for about three days. And I left my kids with my mom and I'm like, I can't, you know, I can't deal with this. But after those three days, you know, the Holy Spirit nudging at you again, he's like, you know, what, what are you complaining about? You know, get up, straighten yourself out. I told you everything was going to be okay. I told you there was going to be a greater purpose in this. So, you know, man up or woman up. And through, you know, reflection and through just day by day, I'm like, okay, God, you're right. You're right. And it's when I began speaking out about this, when I began going on podcasts, when I began, you know, doing interviews for print media and God just started to use me in this way that I can talk about it and that I can bring light to these families. And it was crazy. It was horrific. But again, I know so many families who are not as fortunate as me. I began researching into the system, you know, why is the system the way it is? And come to find out nothing new under the sun, follow the money. There is actually a law, you know, that was passed by Bill Clinton in 1997 called the Adoptions and Safe Families Act, which gives federal incentives for the states to put up children for adoption that are in foster care. And I don't know if you remember back in the 90s, you know, Hillary Clinton was actually the mastermind and she always used her little phrase, it takes a village, right, to raise kids and that these children need their forever homes. But the one critical question that's never asked is should these children have been removed to begin with, right? What people don't realize is that there is no due process in family court. You are basically guilty and have to prove your innocence. It's completely backwards from what we think of as a courtroom. And again, you know, under the law, child abuse is a crime. So if you are guilty of child abuse, then you will go to federal court and you will have your day in court where you get to present your side, the other side gets to present their side and whatever happens, happens, a trial by jury. But social services has created a new category of allegations that they call neglect. So a child can be removed from their home based on neglect. Now, what does neglect mean? That can mean whatever the social worker that goes to your house that day wants it to mean. Right. If you have a pile of dirty dishes, if your house is unkempt, if your child hasn't taken a bath in two days, if, you know, whatever reason they may think, 
they can say it is neglect and take away your child. So, so for any reason that they seem see neglect as being neglect, then that's what they say it is not what there's nothing in law that says what neglect really is. Right. There's nothing in the law that says what neglect is. And even according to the government's own data, 67% of removals are based on neglect and less than 10%, I believe it's something like seven or 8% are based on actual physical abuse or sexual abuse. So you have something like 83% of cases are unsubstantiated, are found to be unsubstantiated. Yet the children get removed anyway. They prolong the process. Like my attorney said, they prolong it past those six months so that the children can be adopted out and eventually termination of the parental rights. And when they are adopted out, the state still receives money for every child that is placed in foster care and adopted. The state receives anywhere from $2,000 to $8,000 a month per child. Okay, and right now I believe there's 435,000 children in the foster care system. And you're telling me that all these children, all of these children have been quote unquote abused and they are all in foster care because there is not one person within the family that can take care of these children? I find that very hard to believe. And again, if you go back to the money, strangers get more funding than family. So if a child is placed with family, they don't receive as much money as if it were placed with a foster care agency, adoption agency, the church, mean anything. That is like a third party beneficiary. So, you know, that was shocking for me to learn, having grown up in the church, having been a Christian, and we always heard in church that foster care, you know, was like the Make-A-Wish make Foundation, that we would have workshops, that we would be encouraged to sign up to be foster parents, that we would give donations to these organizations, and it never, ever crossed our minds that this was illegal. I mean, this is basically for the money. It's basically human trafficking. I mean, the very definition of human trafficking is to, you know, take somebody for a price and make them do work, whether it be sexual or labor or physical or whatever. And even Se uh, Secretary Pompeo has come out with the human trafficking report of last year that found 67% of the children that were rescued were in the care of social services when they were rescued, which is, you know, astounding. It's sad. Astounding number. I'm sorry? That's a very amazing and astounding number. Yes, it is. It's crazy. And, but if you look at it, you know, even if you speak to a psychologist, like what do you expect a child to do when they are simply ripped away from their family with absolutely no closure? Like they made me sign a form that said that I could not talk to my children about the case when I was visiting them. I could not tell them what was going on. I could not tell them when I'd be home. I could not tell them if I'd be home. I mean, the children are just left floating, right? And you take away their sense of identity. You put them with strangers 
And, you know, when you become a teenager, as we know, teenagers are vulnerable, period, to begin with, but especially these teenagers. And if, you know, anybody shows them a little bit of attention and tells them what they want to hear, they're going to fall right into that trap, right? Into prostitution, into drugs, into homelessness, I mean, you name it. And the cycle then repeats itself, right? That these children, these teenagers, they themselves might get pregnant. Then they themselves might have their children placed up for adoption. I mean, it's just a vicious cycle. And I think, you know, to make a difference, legislation definitely needs to be changed. I don't think any child should have a bounty attached to their head. And we as a church, I think we definitely need to get involved and not in the way that we have been involved by adopting these children or by fostering these children. I think the other way around, we should do everything we can to keep these families together. You know, the Bible tells us to be a, a father to the fatherless and to take care of the widow and the orphan. These children are not fatherless, they are not orphans, okay? They have parents. And it's not to say that in some cases, they do have to be removed. But like I said, by the government's own statistics, that's less than 7% of the cases where it's either physical abuse or sexual abuse. Now, you know, if it is a matter that a parent is on drugs, is an alcoholic, is poor, you know, is beneath the poverty line and their house is unkempt and, you know, whatever the, the situation is in these cases, why not take the money that they're offering foster parents and give it to the biological parents so that the biological parents can get their act together? Why not place this money into rehab centers so that these parents can go get some help when they want to? You know, I just think everything is set up completely backwards. And as a church, you know, if you see somebody in your community and your fellowship that needs help, you know, go help them. Go make a home cooked meal, offer to babysit, offer to drive them. You know, if the mom has to work two to three jobs, you know, help these people. Find a nonprofit organization that will help these people. Because the minute you report this to law enforcement, you have lost complete control of what happens. And chances are this child is never going to see their parent again. So, you know, take everything they say with a grain of salt, really do. I can only imagine what a potential foster parent would hear about my case, okay, without ever speaking to me, without vetting me, without knowing me. The only person they get to speak to is the social worker. Now you imagine the social worker telling a potential foster family that look at this baby, the seven week old baby endured a cranial fracture while in the care of his mother. Will you please help this baby along with his sibling who's 20 months old and take care of these children. If that's the only part of the story you hear, then of course, anybody's gonna say, give me these kids and keep this evil woman away from them. But they don't know the rest of the story. And that's the problem. That's a real problem. Do you see any way of getting out of it other than what legislation needs to be done? Well, legislation needs to be done. And again, like if people weren't so I don't know, trigger happy to call that anonymous tip line, right? And report every little single thing that they see. Because again, people don't realize that there is no due process. You have no constitutional protections in family court. 
This is Teresa. Um, what about a constitutional amendment or something of that nature? Because you just called it, there are no constitutional protections. And it seems to me that ought to be one of the first things we change. That would be interesting to do, you know, because the constitution doesn't specify parental rights. So when we did a civil suit, it was based on a fourth amendment and 14th amendment violation. The fourth amendment is the illegal search and seizure, right? That they cannot do that. Right. And the 14th amendment is the privacy issue that a family has the right to live together with minimal government interference, right? <laughs> right. But it doesn't specify like at what point does the government step in and the parent loses their right? What about where the constitution says we have a right to the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? Having a child ripped away from the yeah. parents in the manner you've described kind of violates some of that, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, the family court system, again, that was invented because in order to qualify for the federal funding, they had to make up their own laws, like their own rules in order to qualify for the federal funding. Because if it goes through the federal system, then again, it would take, you know, a long time for them, for there to be a jury trial, for this person to be found innocent or guilty, and to have a final verdict in order to take away these children and wait to get the federal funding, if it was going to work like that. And of course, they can't have that because what they say goes because they've set themselves up as God. So, right. I, I'll be honest. I've heard your story a couple of times and Adam, uh, uh, please step in at any time. Um, I've heard your story a couple of times and every time there's a new aspect that comes out that just amazes me. Yeah. Like the fact that these people were texting and already making assumptions before they even met you. And yeah. these guys carry a badge. These guys have authority to put silver bracelets on you and lock you up. And they're already yeah. making assumptions. Yeah, it's incredible. It's crazy. Wow. I just, I, I, I don't need anyone. I think... And I mean, the, the, the biggest takeaway is one, yes, God intervened, but more, more not more important, um, but in the context of this conversation and this show, um, you know, the idea that like 62% of these children are trafficked and then 80 something percent of them are invalid as far as like cases, surely, surely someone within our government will realize this and go, you know what, this needs to change. Yeah, I mean, I pray for this person. I mean, in doing my research, you know, if you decide to go down this rabbit hole, you'll find a lot of cases and a lot of people who have tried to bring it up. I understand there are senators in the past that have written reports on the, all of this information. And it seems like this information hasn't changed. But the funny part is, is they were told specifically that if they followed through with this, that they would lose their job as a senator. Yeah. I mean, that's 
exactly what That's they were told. That's very interesting. Absolutely. No, if you if you Google Nancy Schaefer, have you guys heard of Nancy Schaefer? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we know she was a Georgia senator and she has written, she did write, you know, at that point, I, I forget what year it was, but she wrote an entire report specifying everything, everything in detail about the funding, about the lack of due process, about how parents are, you know, innocent and thrown under the rug. I mean, about everything. And, you know, short while after she presented this to Congress, she was found dead. Isn't that interesting? Her and, her and her husband. And they called it a murder-suicide. A couple who had been married for over 30 years, both were born-again Christians, and they decided to commit suicide. Right, just like, just like many other people who have crossed the hairs of, of individuals, uh, were right. murder suicided. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's why a lot of people do not want to touch this with a 60 foot pole. I mean, there are a lot of powerful, powerful, powerful people that control this system. Now, I don't see it changing anytime soon. And as long as we don't have backup, there's no way they're gonna change the system. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I pray, you know, this whole election, I mean, that's a whole nother whole other topic, this craziness that's going on in the world right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's another ball of But you know, yeah. But President Trump has done more for human trafficking than any other president in history. So, you know, I pray that God surround him and that God put people in his path that can show him what's going on in this child welfare system. Because in order for there to be a change, it needs to come from the top, from the top down. That's the only way this is going to change. Well, Rachel, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show mm -hmm. and for talking with us about this whole entire situation, your story and some of the statistics behind it. Mm -hmm. I hope to one day have you on again and maybe we could talk more about some of these statistics. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. Teresa, anything else in closing? No, I just think, um, I think that uh, your story, Rachel, brings a very dark, ugly, bottom feeder culture to the disinfectant of sunlight. And I think the more that we scream it out, yes, the more the cockroaches will run. Yes, absolutely. You know, we have to speak. And like I said, you know, I'm in a position where I can. I can speak. I am educated. I am in a financial position that I can. My children are with me, you know, and I, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Right. I know a lot of parents out there are afraid and I don't blame them because these people are so vindictive. Are you afraid? Okay, are you afraid they're going to come back on you for doing this? No, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I, I am protected by the blood of Jesus, you know, and my family is protected. I'm not, I'm not afraid. And that's why I will be an outspoken voice for these parents who cannot speak. I will speak. Amen. Well, thank you for coming on the show. As Adam said, I think that uh, I think you're doing a good thing. Thank you for speaking out. Thank you, my pleasure.
Adam, it's all yours. Well, we'd like to thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, we hope you listen. Please remember that if you wish to uh, speak to Rachel or talk to Rachel more about this, you go to rachelbruno.com, .com, correct? Yes, correct. Yes, you can go to rachelbruno.com. Uh, please listen and share this episode, and uh, we will see you on the other side of truth. You've been listening to the CPS Truth Now podcast with your host, Ademar Garcia where the truth will set you free from CPS atrocities. We will see you next time on the truthful side.